0: You know what I think we should do? We should start doing a Croiler sports corner. Oh my God. <laughs> where we just talk about a sport, a different one each week. I have week, no idea. <laughs> and you have to talk about it. So like the Masters oh. just happened last weekend. What's your What's take on Masters? that? The Masters. What do you think the Masters is? I, I don't know. Guess it's a legitimate what, question. Guess what sport? I was in Mexico, like I don't even know what I was happening here last <laughs> week Like I, don't, I have no idea And you just became a citizen this year I feel like this yeah. should have been one of the questions <laughs> Not that I'm a fan of this sport, but Well, if you're not a fan of it, that eliminates quite a few things Alright, just off, the, d- d- just guess well, Masters. If you're, um, if you're not a fan Hold on, I'll give you, I'll do this If I named one of the people in it, you definitely know the sport Would I know multiple people in the sport? Possibly, Arnold Palmer Possibly He's a golfer, right? There you go. Okay. All right. Okay. I, I, Tiger Woods obviously would have been a dead yeah. giveaway. You didn't catch the Masters. No, I didn't even know it was a thing. What about uh, March Madness? That was a little while ago. How oh, was that's your... basketball? Right. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. It was basketball. I didn't watch a single game. Do you know who won? No. I don't even know who played. I don't think.
1: I, I don't think it give you five. teams. I don't teams. know who won either. Yeah, I don't think I'll give you five teams.
0: I bet you could do five teams. No, I don't
1: think I could. I don't, even, I don't know if they're professional or if they're college. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, Nate, just try to name five teams. I, I don't know that I could, you know. Uh, I mean, if I, go by, if, I go, if I go with colleges, you know, there's Indiana. And if I can go every state, name Okay, states. so you're just going to... All right, yeah.
0: yeah. Well, there's uh, there's Maryland and there's Indiana. Right, Michigan. Uh, Delaware. And Ohio. There you go. Those are... Okay. See, you know a little bit more than you let on. I... I think that could be a segment each each week. (laughs) Just Jiu-Jitsu, episode 11, Leg Locks, Dose. Welcome, I am Andrew Desimoni. this is Croyler Gracie. Yep. Sorry, I should have let you introduce yourself. No, that's fine, yourself. that's fine. I'm, we should keep going, you're good. I'm Andrew Desimoni, and this is... Croyler Gracie. Perfect. Is the, are the mics on this time? <laughs> they are on. I have a note on my computer that says, check mic input. It's taped, it's ripped out, it looks very professional. It, I saw it. It fits in with the rest of the look of the room. Oh yeah, yeah. we, we even got our... Uh, Sound dampening, you know. We would put the cushions devices. back up. Yeah, yeah. Because sometimes, if I'm having company, I'll, I'll go put the cushions back <laughs> on the couch. I just—that's how I impress people. They walk into my house and look in the living room. and They go, "Wow, he has all his cushions on the couch." So <laughs> I make them feel special. I get it. Yeah. So mics are on. We're good. Things sound nice. Thank you, everyone, for understanding the technical difficulties of last week. I turned the episode on to edit, and immediately was just ticked off to hear that it sounded terrible. But it, it sounded, I think, worse in my head than it, it sounded to other people. Which yeah, it wasn't is, horrible. Which is nice, yeah. And content wasn't great, but that's not my fault, that's yours. Uh, that's that so, my fault, you're correct. <laughs> so we we both failed last yeah. week. Yeah, we did. But because it was so bad, we're gonna do a second episode on Leg Locks. We'll try to redeem ourselves. We will.
1: Um before before we get into it though um a couple quick things i was in um puerto Escondido this last week in mexico for bj in paradise Um, i want to thank brad wolfson for hosting this is his fourth year hosting um i'll be back there again next year and so will brad and a you know fantastic you know number of instructors out there i think we had 15 this year wow um also, the only reason I'm bringing this up is one to to you know give a shout out to Brad and, and BJ in Paradise, but also um, to congratulate um, George Law on his black belt. He got his black belt there. Uh, for those of you that don't know, George Law hosts um, co-hosts the Great Northeastern podcast um, which is a Jitsu podcast for those of you that are interested. And uh, I think in in they do seasons, I believe, and in one of the episodes of the season, there'll be a podcast talking about what it is to be, you know, what it, what does it mean to become a black belt and what it takes to become a black belt. And um, they give us a shout out, so I figured nice. we'd we beat them to the curve. And
0: yeah, and, and you were on an episode last year, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, Where you, Marcio, too, okay. Stambowski. Yep, I was on one last year in Mexico in BJ
1: in Paradise, and then I was on one again at the end of the year. Very cool. I visited them, so.
0: Are they also the people that you saw earlier this year? And did you stay L- at their house? L- 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 later, late, late la- later last year. Yes, at the
1: end, the end of last year.
0: Also, I heard that they're fantastic hosts, right? They are great hosts. Good yeah, cook. They, oh one yes. of the guys is yeah, a great cook. R- R-
1: Riddler is an incredible cook. Yeah. 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 He's supposed to be an incredible
0: musician, too, but I was just fascinated by the food, so it didn't really matter. Wow. So could, could you give his address out so if people are in the area, they can look him just, up? Just and... hang out at his house? Yeah. I'm yeah. sure he wouldn't mind. <laughs> I don't know that I remember his address. Uh, okay. All right. Um, well, yeah. Check check that podcast out. Like Quirler said, they, they do a great job. Um, and then the BJJ in Paradise, that's something I would recommend to everyone. I went two years ago, or two or three years ago. Two years ago. Yeah, and I, I loved it. It was in a beautiful part of the country and you have how many black belts that yeah, usually between, show up?
1: Between 10 and 12, this year we're at 15, so.
0: Yeah, you have a ton of black belts. Everyone there is very friendly. The facilities are unlike any other place you'll train. You're training on a, a hilltop that kind of overlooks the ocean right. in an area that was, used to be like for hanging gardens and was converted with mats. Go there if, if you want a great time and to meet a lot of uh, awesome jiu-jitsu people. W- while we're doing shout-outs, it's been a while, let's give a shout-out to the Grappling Dads. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I – um, yeah, they – uh
1: Yeah. Good job guys. You guys are doing good.
0: <laughs> I thought you were leading up to a on. and then you just
1: you just stopped and I, I was trying to think of something but then I just I just didn't have it in me, you know?
0: There's a lot that is inside <laughs> that brain, but but positive words towards the grappling just, dads. It was tough. Those those aren't in there. <laughs> it was just stuff. Well, you know what I'll do it. The grappling dads, Kip and Paul are two individuals. I can't do it either. That's yeah. it. They're just two they're two they yeah. are two humans and they have a podcast.
1: And that's that's all. I do like to answer one thing though. In their, in their last episode, they did mention that, you know, our podcast was cute. It was only like 45 minutes long. It wasn't <laughs> like right. a real episode. Mm-hmm. I would like to mention that when I write their the, the pro tips to them, they're only supposed to be about 45 minutes, but their episodes are about an hour and 20, and that's because they just, you know, don't have the focus or professionalism to stay on topic.
0: Yeah. Well, and they're kind of like the, when you're at a family reunion, they're like that, uncle that makes you uncomfortable and just you can't get out of the conversation with him. He right. just keeps talking and talking and, and talking walks
1: slowly with you as you shuffle out of the room.
0: Yeah. And as you back out to try to get away, right. he steps closer. They don't know personal space. That's that's them. And we are the young, like just out of college cousin who to, like just came back from a trip from Europe right. and is telling you about all these fascinating things. That's just that's that's us. That's a different, it's just a difference. It's just it's just different tastes. Yeah. One's not better than the other. Yeah, so check out Grappling Dads. <laughs> they it, It's a it's a good show. Check it out. Okay, that's one of our longest intros ever. Yeah. Uh, so today, leg locks. Last time we talked about the history of leg locks in jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. also the history of leg locks in Greek mythology. Can't <laughs> right. forget about that. Right, right. You were an expert in that field. Yes. I have a PhD that I got from the University of Phoenix in Greek mythology. Perfect. So. We talked about history, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, leg locks. We talked about the um, evolution, how they transformed through the years, the perception of them. Most of it was all contextual. We talked a little bit of... Eh, we really, We really didn't do much about technique or anything. No, we'll touch no. base on that today. We will. So to start this episode off, I always kind of... Because I always think of things in like a story. I always want to go back to... Last time we went to leglocks in Brazilian history, you mentioned last episode leglock. You kind of talked about leglocks in combat martial arts. Right. Where do you start when you start to think of origins of leglocks? Well, you know, um,
1: it, it, like I said, it's 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 always interesting to me. Like the, it's fascinating to me, especially in martial arts where there are several different styles or several different. Uh, or, or, or let me rephrase that where several different, several different styles of fighting are all developing roughly the same techniques.
0: Kind of parallel you know, thinking going yeah, on.
1: Yeah, but in, in completely different parts of the world um, that had no way of exchanging information at the time. You know, so you know, if we talked about Brazil, again, we went from roughly the 1910 to 1980s in Brazil. We, we kind of finished in the 2000s coming to America and entering John Danaher and, and the Death Squad. Um, But before we go into the 2000s, we should visit, like, Russia, right? So um, in 19—I believe it was, like, 1920s, um, Sambo was being developed. And and essentially, Sambo was developed by two two guys. I forget their names now. Um, And and if I remember it, I'll butcher their names anyways. But these guys were—they didn't train together, but they both are— accredited for developing sambo one of them was very judo influenced he actually trained in Japan for years under Shigoro Kano um,
0: oh really yeah man Kano had his kinda had some, fingers and just kind of just about everywhere everything. yeah that's, that's interesting then, uh, did he travel to Russia or was no, no the guy went to, to Japan
1: to train to to live colonize, whatever the case may have been I'm not quite as as experienced with the russian history as I am with brazilian history but um, he he lived there for years and he actually I believe he got to like second degree under kano um, at the time there's only five degrees in a black belt so pretty 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 um, highly decorated uh, where the other the other guy in russia um, focused more on like in the wrestling aspect of you know fighting and um, they eventually met at some point in the '30s. They cross-trained as um, as it means to create self-defense. In fact, in fact, Sambo is actually an acronym um, for several Russian words, and it basically translates to self-defense. Like for the people that don't know, Sambo translates to self-defense. It was heavily influenced and financed and pushed by the Russian military as a means of combat. The idea was if our soldiers are out in, in great long battles and they get stranded, their weapons break, they dirty up whatever the case may be, we need to have the most efficient form of combat possible. Kind of like the same mentality that the Japanese had.
0: Mm. Um, so they came up with, with Sambo where those two guys kind of traded techniques. One thing that I just thought of as you said that, mm. and not to send us on a tangent, but did Brazil have that government support like no, Japan no. and Russia that it really just formed it like formed, in the yeah. organically
1: amongst yeah. the public, yeah. Basically, in Brazil, it was, <coughs> um, you know, it was a cool thing to do. And, um, we, we can eventually do a, a podcast on how juice is spread in Brazil, yeah. We, we can do it later, but, um, so anyway, so those two guys kind of cross pollinated, they trained together, they came up with a system, eventually, it was presented to the government, um, to the military uh, in Russia. They adopted it, they kind of formulated. And um, anyway, so the guy that was actually in Japan, he was actually eventually killed. He was in prison and killed because they thought he turned code and became a Japanese spy when he came back. But Mm. that's a different story. But anyways, so the the Russian military then focused very heavily on, what was their perfect form of self-defense, Sambo. And for them, the most, the, the perfect form of self-defense would be one that involved the most effective form of striking with um, the fastest form of submissions, right? They, they didn't think, they didn't take the approach that my grandfather did where, because my grandfather was smaller and weaker, he, he looked for the weakness in the fight and took advantage of that. The, the Russians are known for, for being physically Powerful. Um, they took the approach of we're going to impose our will and, and kind of break, you know, find the break. And so they incorporated boxing into sambo. Um, not so much with leg kicks. There are some, but but very heavy boxy and in, boxing influence in sambo, and the very very heavy influence of wrestling and judo into into um, sambo. And and the the, the problem with the wrestling takedowns and the judo takedowns, where if you were good with them, right, you're usually on top. And for them, if they're gonna have to come down to the opponent to find a submission, they might as well find the most damaging submission. And to them, that was leg locks, it was crippling, right? You break somebody's arm, they can survive, they can escape, they can come back later. Not not so much with, with leg locks, you break somebody's leg in battle, they're they're not leaving the battle. <laughs> What are a lot of their entries to the leg locks? So they they actually um, you know, we talk about in our school like four different kinds of leg entanglements. Right, we talk about ashigrami, outside ashigrami, We talk about the honey hole or or saddle or four eleven. That's all the same thing, and we talk about like fifty fifty. Um, but there's a couple of the more obscure ones like what what I call like a Russian leg lace, where they feed the legs to the outside, and it's something that um, I can show you in class at some point. Um, but anyways, so the, a lot of their takedowns, as soon as a person falls, it's to a quick armbar or to a quick leg lock, and they're looking for the very fastest submissions they could. They didn't allow for chokes though, which is kind of weird. I, I don't understand the, their emphasis against choking. In fact, in in sambo. Um, There's two styles of sambo. There's uh, the the grappling side and the combat side. I think only in the highest levels of combat sambo are chokes allowed. So I don't know if it's a safety thing, if they thought it wasn't safe for these very patriotic Russian military guys to be choking each other or what the case was, but they they decided that leg locks were safer.
0: Yeah, that's (sighs) completely different from jiu-jitsu. Usually a choke is... far safer, yeah. Looked as, as kind of the safest when you're right. rolling with someone right. to be submitted. Okay.
1: So you know the the Russians developed it developed that love for leg locks and love for for um, arm bars as the fastest means to submitting somebody after they've taken them down. For them, if I took somebody down, you control them on the ground for five minutes. In battle, you don't have that luxury, right? Um, you saw it in Pancrase. You know Pancrase fighting. They did lots of leg locks. Um, if they were on the bottom. not so much from top. You don't see a lot of pink race guys on top attacking leg locks. There are a couple exceptions, like Frank, uh, not Frank Mayer, but um, the deadliest man in the world. What's his name? I forget his name now. Shamrock. Uh, Shamrock. Frank yep. Shamrock. Yeah. You know, he's a pink race fighter, you know, leg locks from top, but it's pretty unorthodox. Generally speaking, pink race fighters attack legs from the bottom. race explain what that is exactly for, for listeners. You know, I, I will admit I'm not an expert in Pancrase. Um, I, 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 I know enough, but the, to to my understanding, Pancrase is uh, striking on your feet, punching, kicking. Um, it's bare knuckles usually, but they do wear boots on their feet, which is kind of odd. Um, protect their toes, but not their hands. Um, and once they grapple, once grappling starts, there's no no striking. So okay. it's on your feet, you strike, on the ground, you grapple. Um about Valley Tudo, what is Valley Tudo? Actually, literally translates to um, everything is allowed. Yeah. So Valley Tudo Valley Tudo matches, literally meant everything. Eye gouging, head butting. I mean, you mean you name it, they you, you it could be done.
0: Okay. Yeah. And is that a Brazilian thing? Brazilian thing. thing yeah. Mm-hmm. Did that come out after? That came out around the Jiu-Jitsu 80s. Jiu becoming popular. Yeah. yeah,
1: it was around the 80s um, because of the the wrestlers and the the catch a catch can which are, is the next martial next style that I was going to talk about. Um so Pancrase guys did leg locks. They were not very very developed, but they did some. The Russians were by far the most developed leg locks especially at the time. Um then you had catch a catch can or catch wrestling which <laughs> I am not a particularly huge fan of. Not no nothing against catch a catch can. Um some very tough guys in in that style but um, they take the approach of if something isn't working, you're just not cranking hard enough. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of like head twisting and face cranking, and you know we're just gonna pull it until
0: it bends and breaks, and you know it doesn't have to be pretty, It just has to work. It makes sense because the few guys I know that are from the catch world are all just big burly guys. Yeah, and, and there are some guys that are smaller. Um, uh, I think uh, Riley
1: Bodycomb. I think he's catch as catch can. I think, and and Barikom kind of wrecked. He was he was really good early on in the late '90s, early 2000s scene in jujitsu. He he was wrecking guys left and right with leg locks because they, they had no idea, and his catch a catch can experience with leg locks was sufficient to take advantage of the inept jiu-jitsu
0: guys at the time. Is Josh Barnett a catch guy? Catch a catch can. Okay. Yeah. He does have a black
1: belt in jitsu though, but he he also he his main style is catch a catch can. Yeah.
0: Because I remember seeing him roll, I uh, have a comp, uh, I think it was a super fight against Dean Lister. Right. And yeah. he was wearing... A speedo, a speedo and Speedo Did and he have boots, boots on also? And boots, yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know, so
1: so you have, you know, the Russians with Sambo had their leg locks. Ben Crace had a little bit of leg locks. Again, very rudimentary. They're probably a couple decades behind the Russians. Kachis um, Kachkan... To Me, they were the furthest back from everybody because of the the high level buffering that they were putting at the time with leg locks that you know no other style was emphasizing. Um, there's shoot fighting in Japan as well, which is very similar to Pancrase, um, very heavy emphasis on leg locks as well. It's reggae guys like Shanioki and um, and Imanari. Imanari eventually got his black belt jujitsu, I think Shanioki did too. But those are after the fact, they were shoot fighters to start. Um, but anyway, so basically all over the world, you're having leg lock be developed. Uh, not sure why all of a sudden, between the 20s and seven, uh, 1920s and 1970s, that 50 years propelled leg lock around the world. It wasn't like they were on YouTube, and they're like, wow, that shit's cool, let's try it. You mm-hmm. know? so. I, I can't
0: explain that, but it did happen. So, as you see all these different arts practicing leg locks, what to you is distinct about the way jiu-jitsu approaches that whole idea of leg locks? So, I think
1: I think because of there's something that's never going to be that's never going to disappear in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is the fact that it was created by a physically smaller, weaker, frail man. Because of that single fact, jiu-jitsu has something that protects it and helps it become more effective than the grappling arts, is that everything is looked at as what is the least amount of effort that I have to do in order to be successful. Where in other styles, let's say catch as catch can, you're just not squeezing hard enough in Sambo, it's not enough damage fast enough, right? Um, so again, because of that, I think Brazilian jiu-jitsu people tend to be a little bit more laid back, which allows them to, to dive further into, you know, what makes a technique work, what makes it uh, fail, you know, when is the right time to do something. And, and that, that ability to troubleshoot and to analyze and to hyper analyze a technique, Uh, allows I think our style to absorb rudimentary techniques from other styles and then take them far beyond it
0: so it's the jujitsu approach would be more maybe patient calm or I don't know strategic would be the word when compared to say a sambo where they're they're going for damage. Right. Jiu is kind of going for just survival, getting Correct. getting by, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes the the victory would just be securing an opponent and just outlasting them. Right. Okay. So when you when you take that into consideration, um, well, maybe with with the dynamics of or the mechanics of leg locks, we, let's start getting into the technique. Mm-hmm. I think of two two different things: the legs, which are u- being used to control the opponent, and then the upper body, the arms, which are being mm-hmm. used to execute the submission. Right. Agree. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, it's not just your arms, but your
1: hips and your shoulders and your back. But yeah, absolutely, your legs are doing a lot of the controlling, and and you know, you're from hips to upper bodies that are doing the finishing. I absolutely, I agree with that.
0: And so that the, the legs would arguably be the most important part because you're not going to get to that submission if you don't have that secure base. Right, and I I think that's something
1: that was lost for a long time. You know, you you think of, like, an armbar. You know, you can't armbar somebody from top mount if you're not controlling top mount. But I think for some reason that that thought process somehow became disconnected when it came to leg lock, especially early on. It was kind of like, I'm just gonna dive and see what happens, you know? Um, And it wasn't until, like I said, early 2000s to mid 2000, uh, 2005, 2006 roughly, where you start seeing guys really get good at controlling the legs, isolating the the limb that they wanted to break and, and applying proper breaking
0: pressure. Well, and I still will find myself, if I'm going for a leg lock, forgoing the simple, easy, but fundamental things like, all right, make sure that I have like this foot in the hip, make sure my knees are pinched and automatically thinking, oh, 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 all right. I got to put my hand on here right. and put this arm through the leg. And as I'm doing all of this, I realized that I might have their foot in my hand, but the rest of their body is now like moving around mm-hmm. to my side and I completely lost it. So Maybe let's start with utilizing the legs. What are some key elements that when you start teaching leg locks to people you always you hit on? The,
1: the, the first thing, I, when it comes down to leg locks, I, I teach them in two sections, right? I teach them as a form of control and as a form of submitting, okay? So we go into any, any, any particular leg lock, let's say a regular ankle lock. I look at okay how do i control the the limb the target limb so there's a number of ways of doing that right you, you can go outside ashi where you triangle your legs you triangle the target leg with your legs to where your feet are on the outside of your opponents or let's say the honey hole where you triangle your legs the inside of your opponent's legs um you know the russian leg lace you do the same thing except the opponent's leg is on the outside of your body um regular one foot goes to the butt, one the heel goes to the hip, you kind of crush the knee so that the knee loses mobility and and, and there's a variety of other ways, but um, let's say for the sake of the podcast that we're in ashi, regular asshigrammmi, so we have one foot you know shoelaces on the opponent's butt toes are active. we have one heel on the opponent's hip, we pinch our knees we pull ourselves in so we're nice and tight to the
0: leg there's no slack so and what that, that's important. What's that part? What's so crucial about? It? I know when whenever we're drilling these which this yeah, this week this in week, class yeah. is mm-hmm. uh ankle locks, always scoot up, get close. What's right. that doing? So so um and again, when I say the, scoot up, I'm saying the person who's going for the leg lock is shooting their butt towards the other person's butt and taking away that space.
1: Right. And 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 the best the best quote I've ever heard to explain why we do that um, it's actually from my cousin, Henner. Um, you know, there's a, a great example he'd said once in class. If you have a string hanging from the ceiling, and you and it's just hanging, right, and you try to cut that string with a sword or a knife or whatever your, your objective choice is, it, the, the string will kind of bend with the, with the blade as the blade comes through, and it's very hard to cut it. You could, you just add a lot of power, but then we go back into, like, catch-as-catch-can, you know, or sambo. The The idea being, what if I just held the bottom of the string. And now there's tension on that string, right? There's no give to the string. So now I can nick that string and it just breaks. It's very easy to do that, it takes no effort. So the controlling portion, when you control the target leg, what you're doing is you're creating tension in that leg. So there's no give. There's no room for the knee to turn. There's no room for the opponent to push their leg through or to pull their leg through. The leg is essentially immobilized. What we're doing is, to me, the same thing as when you arm bar somebody and you have one leg over their head, one leg under their armpit and you pull your knees together, pinch your knees together, pull your heels in tight and you lay down, right, and the arm is fully extended. And then we go into the breaking mechanic of in the arm bar, you would hip in and and pull the arm down and so on that's what we've done with Ashigarami. So now we've isolated that limb and it's completely mobile. It's very vulnerable. The question is, how do we break it now? And then we go into the evolution of breaking mechanics, right?
0: Ah, so if we're sticking to um, Ashigarami and let's just say a standard ankle lock, mm-hmm. we've walked through securing, controlling the person mm-hmm. and now... Let's, I guess, explain the submission, and then we can talk about what it was and what it's evolved to today. So today,
1: um, I think techniques are far more uh, advanced, far more studied than they've ever been. So today, the way you would do an ankle lock, you would wrap the ankle, right? The, The leg is immobile, so you'd wrap it with your outside arm, the arm that's on the same side as the leg. You wanna get as close to the Achilles but not past the Achilles. And that's just simple mechanics. If you're closer to the end of the lever, the more damage you can deliver. Right? And the damage here is being done to? To the ankle. To his, okay. Right, so we wrap the, we wrap the foot um, with our forearm, bicep roughly around the, the Achilles. We then need to start creating a rotation. And to do that, we pull our elbow behind our back. So as far back as we can, so that our chest is almost facing the ground. When, what we're doing there is we're bending the foot and bending the ankle sideways. And um, what what that does is it targets the ligament on the ankle. And and there's a very important distinction between ligaments and tendons, which we'll talk about during the evolution of the mechanics. But what it's doing is isolating the ligament. And at that point, um, we then expand our chest. And the reason we're expanding our chest is because since the opponent's foot is essentially bending around your torso. If your torso gets bigger, you create a bigger bend,
0: Hmm.
1: right? And then we apply power to it. We hip in, we arch our back, and we deliver muscular strength to the ankle that's already bent and vulnerable and has no slack because of the control. And then that causes the break. Uh, However, if you go back 20 years, even just 20 years, the way ankle Lock was done, you would get essentially a Kimura grip on the foot. So you'd wrap the, the Achilles, you put one hand on the shin, one hand on your forearm, and you have a Kimura grip on the opponent's foot, right? And mm. then you would fall
0: straight back to your shoulders and you'd hip into it like an arm bar. So that's a completely different way of breaking. That, is that, right. It seems like that'd be breaking different parts you're, of the leg, right? Absolutely, you're pulling, you're essentially in one,
1: you're twisting the foot where in the other, you're trying to hyperextend the ankle by pulling the toes towards their heel. Okay. And those are two different breaks and two completely different approaches to leg locking and two different
0: um, levels of, you know, effectivity. Is, um, is the older version, uh, is that used in competition much? No, because not
1: well. I'm not going to say no, because you, you will find footage of people still doing it today. Um, but it's interesting, the, the, their approach to leg locking back then was so rudimentary that they're essentially incorporating different concepts from different techniques into one, right? They, and, and I'm not saying anybody thought this way. I think this was just how it happened to develop. You know, at some point in time, somebody grabbed a kimura and said, man, this is a really great way to hold somebody's arm. If I do this to somebody's ankle... I can hold their ankle. Mm-hmm. And if I hip into a joint in the opposite direction that a joint breaks, like an arm bar, if I do that to the ankle that I'm holding really tight because they can wear grip, maybe it'll break too. Right. And it's true, it, it, it'll break. I mean, there's plenty of footage of ankles being broken that way. But it's you know
0: it's not the most effective. Were they using activation. the same type of um, control with the legs? No,
1: no. The, well, the the legs were mostly to, the legs at that time were mostly used to keep the opponent away. So, at the time, old old school Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, right? You would have some sort of uh, your inner leg, instead of cupping the butt, would be pushing the opponent's legs away, and. They're a free leg away, and your foot that's in the hip would still be in the hip, but with the intent of keeping them down, keeping the hips away. Yeah, keeping them away from you and down and 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 apart. What the idea was, if I can hold the guy at bay long enough, and I have this amazing control from the Kimura grip, and I hip into it like an armbar, maybe
0: it'll break. Hmm. And it does. It breaks just fine. That is. That's that's interesting. That's so much different it, than what we have now. It might look. It looks very similar um, from a sh- if you're just walking by and like yeah, as far as no If
1: you had no idea, it may it may look close enough.
0: But yeah, one is only worried about the motion of the opponent in one direction. So when did you start to see this morph into what it is today? I think it started, like I said,
1: probably probably mid two thousands, two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, definitely by two thousand and
0: ten, you saw more and more. Uh, better better braking mechanics right so it was that late oh yeah yeah ankle locks took th- i i thought you were going to say 80s no don't get oh. me
1: wrong like people have been doing them forever we talked about it in the previous podcast but um the 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 issue was the lack of knowledge was abundant you know plain people had no idea what they were doing and they just added power and they thought that you know if the Kimura grip hip and armbar, an arm bar ankle luck they used to do in the 80s 90s even early 2000s wasn't working it's just because they weren't strong enough or the opponent was very flexible like that was the other answer too like their feet are just too flexible doesn't work but then you, you saw guys like dean lister um frank Meir, um the the the, the dan death squad right they they started coming to the scene um, paliaris and the ufc used to, they started coming in and they took a completely different approach to to leg locking and and the idea, again, I'm not quite sure who triggered what or if it was a mutual parallel development like we saw earlier with sambo, jiu-jitsu, pancreas, shoe fighting, kind of all developing at the same time. Or if there was some sort of gathering that these people
0: all attended, I, I don't know. but When did you change your game over from the traditional ankle lock I'm, style to? I'm such an addict
1: that um, I study everything. And as soon as I started seeing people Doing it differently, um, and like I said I don't think I ever went to anybody and said, "Hey, teach me a heel hook or teach me a, an ankle lock." Um, as soon as I started watching the different approach to it, the, the first thing came to mind was why, right? You know, and, and it turns out that the people that I was asking, that I would ask myself that question as I was watching those people that that I saw, they were the people that were. Pulling them off successfully more often than others, and more consistently than others. So, um, so maybe I thought there was something to it. You know, what are they actually doing? And then, and then I spent, you know, I spent you know, long time breaking them down and kind of spending time with them and and really understanding what was happening and how they they modified the approach. And 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 you know that that led me to kind of modify my leg locks too.
0: So, what makes the evolution of the ankle lock with the arm uh, area what makes the new version so much better than the old I see with the feet a huge difference because right. now you trap you keep the person stationary what's so much better about so that rotation
1: when we when we did the episode on, on, on locks right I think it was called a joint locks or whatever mm. the the title was we talked about there's different styles of breaking, right? Um, the two most common ones are hyperextension or compression, and the other is rotational. So if you think like an armbar is in a hyperextension, and you look at uh, Kimura as a rotational. Um, when we get to the ankles, the ankles have such a huge range of, of motion um, yeah. that it's very tough to hyperextend them. You know, remember you're going flat, right? And, and most people's foot will. Point perfectly straight, so you have to push past that to break, um, and, and it's not super successful that way. However, rotationally, your ankles are not very good. Um, you see it all the time in basketball. Uh, players will, is it dribbling or whatever, whenever they switch back and forth, whatever that's called, they they will roll their ankles and, and snap their own ankles like for for seemingly nothing. And people are like, oh, they have weak ankles. No, these are major athletes that. Have the best form of conditioning in the world, they're still breaking ankles because, anatomically speaking, the rotation is weak in everybody's ankles, and that's partially due to the difference between tendons and ligaments. The ligament um, is connecting bone to bone. There's less give than a tendon that connects, you know, muscle to bone. So um, by rotating, you target the ligament instead of the tendon. Hyperextending the ankle, you're usually targeting a tendon.
0: Oh, okay. So you're targeting just the weaker? Yeah, the weaker yeah. Thing. I mean, think
1: about it like, if you're ever running or and you missed step, and it's like you don't even fall, but now you twist your ankle and it feels horrible, mm-hmm. and you're not sure why. It's because the ligament
0: can't take that kind of abuse. When you teach leg locks at your school, it always, everyone, first one they learn is Shigerami, mm-hmm. ankle lock. What, what's the reason for starting there? What do you like so much about that? So I think
1: a regular ashigurami is a great platform to become good at, because it's easier to learn. There's less moving parts. Um, and that allows, an ashigrami is a very good platform to, to transition from there to more aggressive uh, controlling positions, like the honey hole or outside ashigarami. So if I came in in a beginner's class, in a white class, and I taught the honey hole, right? And, and, um, students would struggle to understand how we got there. It doesn't really make sense, especially a white belt. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And and they wouldn't understand why that position is more favorable than let's say an easier entry like Ashigrami. Um it, you know, it and, and like I said, you gotta start somewhere. You gotta start at the fundamentals. I think Ashigrami is the most fundamental controlling form form of control, um, as far as like looks go. And then Ankle lock is the most fundamental submission, um, as far as leg locks are concerned. You, know, you can move into things like, you know, toe holds, knee bars, heel hooks, you know, estima locks, hip locks, you know, all sorts of different things. But but they're far more advanced. It would be like teaching a, you know, beginners class like
0: a normal plata versus a kimura. Mm-hmm. Was ashigarami the? Um, was that really all that was used? early days of jujitsu. jitsu
1: No, I mean, even even the, like I said, if you go back 20 years ago, and you look at how people leg locked back then, their ashigurumi was nothing like it is today. like, they were keeping people apart, right? This, this too came from an evolution, roughly at the same time.
0: Were they doing anything like honey hole, or oh, any? no. Nothing, n- nothing no like other?
1: It, nothing like that, and if they did, it was by accident. They kinda just- They
0: just ended up with their legs tangled yeah, and improvised? Right, and they're kinda not sure what happens here. Yeah. Okay. So 2005, 2006, the leg locks start to really develop, blow up. We talked a little bit last time about big reason for that mm-hmm. is Dan Ahern, the death squad. Right. What did they bring to the table right away that you saw that distinguished them apart from everyone else? Was it just simply they were so good at it? Was it? No, I mean, the breaking mechanics, So the people had the breaking mechanics that they had, right? So it wasn't so much the breaking mechanics as, it,
1: as much as it was the control and the chaining of attacks right so um all those guys eddie cummins tonan nikki ryan um gordon ryan you know i mean pick, pick any of them right um particularly eddie cummins as, as being you know one of the the best leg lockers in the world they um they could usually put people in ashigarami or outside ashigarami any sort of control with their legs and they could control it so well that people could not get out Right? If breaking mechanics are equal in both parties, the person that controls best wins. Right, So their control is incredible and, and people struggled to get out of it to the point where they were so afraid of staying there for too long and being caught that they would try to move preemptively out of the position in a completely stupid way that never made any sense. And, and that's why you see lots of breaks in leg like, especially early on in Eddie Cummins' career or even in Tomlin's career is that they would put these guys in in very, they would control these guys very well with their legs. They couldn't find a way out. So they, they would think to themselves, it's only a matter of time before they break my ankle. And then they would try to escape with a leg lock, locked into place and their leg locked into place and you'd see lots of breaks. In fact, most of, this is how much of a, an addict I am. Uh, I've, I've studied um, a lot of uh, Eddie Cummings' matches, especially his early ones. Um, I think I think at one point I kept a t- I kept a tally
0: of it. I think it's something ridiculous, like eighty three percent or eighty four percent of his matches. I remember he wrote a song about him for a little while. No, I didn't. write It was an song. acoustic. Uh, no, song. He, he pulled I, out I, a guitar. No, I'm sorry. It wasn't acoustic. I don't it was sing. uh, uh, uh <laughs> or play the guitar. I'm not that talented.
1: <laughs> I'll find the footage. <clears throat> Anyways, it was something like eighty three, eighty four percent of the times that he broke people's legs. Um, it was actually the person breaking it themselves. They would try to roll out of it or power out of a, a heel hook the wrong way, and their ankles would break and their knees would break. Mo- moving past that, so if they couldn't control somebody in a situation that they found somebody who was adept at leg locks or just good, you know, good, good, good grappler, they were they were the first people to truly have a consistent, systemized. Form of uh, a sequence of attacks. If this failed, we're going to do this. If this fails, we're going to go back to this or transition into something else. And they could chain the leg
0: lock games to their, to their success, and people couldn't get out. They couldn't find a way out. Um, could of, you, if you were watching them closely at that time? Um, did it become pretty formulaic where you could see you oh, could yeah. kind of figure out yeah, yeah. exactly what their transitions would be? Yeah, absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they all transition the same way. It makes sense; they all come from the same school.
0: Well, and at the time, since no one else knew that, you can just do go back to what works over and over and over. Right. And what what kind of stuff were they transitioning? What were those early things that they were was like their bre- their bread and butter that they didn't so, really have to change until people started to so, catch up. So.
1: Um,
0: the 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 one two combo that they had for a
1: long time was ashi to outside ashi and then as people got a little better or and as they became more comfortable because they developed a confidence in their own ability right after competing so much they started getting into uh, they would bypass ashi and outside ashi and just go straight into honey hole they would do like butterfly leg lifts and start attacking you know the outside of the leg and go you know honey hole And if people tried getting out of it, they would just go right back into Ashigarami and the cycle would repeat itself. And and basically they they would corner people into this very, this facet of the game that they were just not used
0: to. Was the first time you saw Honey Hole watching those guys? The first time I saw people purposefully going for it, yes. Okay. You know,
1: Honey Hole is not new, it's happened before. Um, But it was the first time people were willingly going in there. You know, 5050 was around, you know, it was, was booming roughly around the same time leg locks were being developed by a completely different group of people, you know, and um, they were doing Honey Hole as well. They were doing Ashigami. They were doing all these other things, but never with the intent of submission. It was usually with the intent of sweeping or back taking or, you know, doing other things like that, where, you know, the, the Donner, Donner's approach was to control and submit.
0: So with stuff like that, would young Croyler would he get excited when he'd see the butterfly sweep to Honey Hole oh, and absolutely. start to think of Honey Hole as this whole new way of just yeah? Because Honey is that Honey Hole. Would you say that's one of the most absolute controls of yeah, oh, the yes. leg lock game? As far as
1: leg locks, I mean, you could argue. You could argue for it being, you know, one of the better, if not the best, position for like locking. It allows for a multitude of options of attacking options. Keeps you pretty consistently safe. Um, it's hard to, to defeat. It's hard to like defend against. It's hard to escape.
0: Um, it's a very good, solid position. So it gets the award for one of the best solid positions, and all, also one of the weirdest names. Well, and that's the thing,
1: like naming schemes, right? And this is like an this is an American thing because Brazilians don't name shit, okay? Like if you if you think of a hundred years of Brazilian jiu in Brazil, there's only a few techniques that are named, right? You know, like crucifix, rear naked, triangle, plata, kimura. That's it, right?
0: Well, then Brazilians come here to America and show all of us these things, and we're like, what's that called? I don't know. No, we need to have a name for it. No, seriously, like you guys have like a, a naming fetish, <laughs> and <laughs> we love and, labels. We've got to have absolutely,
1: yeah. So like you know, the honey hole is the same thing as the saddle, or the four four eleven is the same thing. I think Donner calls the inside simpaku or senkaku or whatever he calls it, which is like it just translates to inside triangle. So you triangle inside the legs, you know. So um, I think it's inside senkaku, but. Um, You know, like I said, there's a variety of names for it, and it particularly is annoying. You know, naming schemes are great to learn something if the naming scheme is consistent. Once it's not, then the naming scheme is actually detrimental to the art.
0: Yeah, I've been to schools before where it's confusing because they'll start off and say, all right, we're working on this, and they'll say a name, and I think, "Okay, this is new, I haven't seen this before. And then as soon as you start to work on it, you go, Oh, no, that's just that's just a, an Americana or, or something that has a very... Uh, yeah, each school has a different name, which... Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like shrimping.
1: Shrimping is a, totally an American thing. That is some bullshit. In Brazil, nobody calls it shrimping.
0: What's it called It's, a,
1: it's a hip escaping. You're escaping your hips.
0: That's good. Hip that's a, it's simple.
1: It's yeah. a descriptive. And you know who else has a naming scheme that's fucking descriptive? The Japanese. All the judo throws... Are descriptions of what's happening. They're not naming the technique. They're describing the technique.
0: Yeah. So, like, oh gosh, is a hip toss. So what you're doing right now, you're just a, you're ad, you're admiring our creativity, right? No. Because we go, oh, what's that? And you go, oh, this is a, this is what I call a shoulder lock, and we go, mm, I'm gonna call it like a a double switch banana breaker. Yeah, like, that's what? exactly how the naming scheme
1: developed in America, <laughs> and I think it's garbage.
0: What about what do you call in honey uh, in Brazil? What mm-hmm. would they call honey hole? I, I don't think that there's a name for it in
1: Portuguese. Okay. Like honestly, I, I think if they were to reference anything, they would probably reference whatever the most commonly heard name from America, right? Um,
0: but I don't think that they have a, a name for it. So when they're coaching, what what are they shouting out? Are they gone, hey, hey, uh, dude, put you, put your right leg over his left leg and. Put your foot under, like that's. It takes a long time to describe. The nice. I think the reason a lot of us like names is because it's a shortcut. To but only if the naming scheme makes sense. To as long as it makes sense to the person you're talking to. So if if they're in your circle, then you can say. Then you can call whatever you want. The naming scheme is irrelevant at that point. No, it's relevant because it that that word creates. A complex message for that person that you're trying to deliver it to. No. Yes.
1: No, 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 no. Because if I said, "Hey," to me, it's the same thing. If if you're competing and you're in somebody's guard, I'm like, "Hey, pass the guard." Cool. I got that. No, no shit, Sherlock. Like that's what you're supposed to do. But it helps
0: because the guard, (laughs) the guard is a name. That the guard. Right. Right. Absolutely. No. Absolutely. But.
1: You're already in the guard, and you already know the objective is to pass. So if I said, hey, heel hook from honey hole, no shit. like That's something that you would want to do on your own. You should want to do on your own. That doesn't help you if I'm coaching you. It'll it'll help you far more if if I say, hey, you need to turn a little bit to the outside because your honey hole is weak. Or you need to grip the heel in order to finish the
0: heel hook. See, but if you're coaching and you go, hey... Andrew, oh, honey hole. Then I know, okay, we've trained this, honey hole, put my legs here. And then from there you can go, you could start to get descriptive about, all right, you need to scoot your hips out. Let's
1: just say I have a higher expectation for for your intelligence than you do for the other people that you're theoretically coaching.
0: I just like something with (laughs) colorful names. I think if we all could have fun names for for moves, um, we'd we'd all be better off. So like,
1: I, I saw a video the other day on the internet. It was like the difference between a pendulum sweep And a flower sweep and it's the same shit okay i don't really care what anybody says it's the same shit so you know if i taught that as two different things let's say i modified it just just as a little bit so if it goes down in one and up in the other right and i said hey andrew do the flower sweep and you thought hey it's a pendulum sweep and and then you did it wrong right you did the wrong one so like again the naming scheme works only if both parties are in agreement as to what it is, and there is absolutely no confusion on you know, what we're meaning. Right. And generally speaking, that's not the case. Oh, no, it is so much better. Dude, how many people
0: misunderstand each other when they're just communicating on a regular conversation? Right, in an ideal situation, if you're coaching someone, and this is ideal. I think you'd be better off if you guys had shorthand words that you could shout out, and they know what you mean. Because then, if you are in the position of coaching, and you're, uh, the person you're coaching has to make split decisions that have to be made in like fractions of a second, you can say uh, uh, "chubby hippo," and that's that's a move they know. Oh, I'm, we're gonna we're gonna find it. We're gonna make. So we're gonna create, create a technique for chubby hippo. Oh, by Jesus the way, Jesus Christ. Okay, now w- we can stop this because now I'm just thinking of amazing names for for. <laughs> and chubby hippo is the one that you 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 thought of. I'll, first. I'll be honest. I got into jujitsu just to start just to, naming just things. naming shit. I noticed there was a big <laughs> vacuum in the community for names. So so here here's the thing, right? So like Eddie Bravo names his whole
1: system is pretty much named, mm-hmm. right? Um, yet his guys aren't necessarily being coached any better than other people's, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the coaching aspect is different because, you know, we've trained together long enough now that if you compete and I say, Hey, Andrew, you need to be on top or you need to do this very broad descriptions of what I want you to do. You'll know exactly what I mean.
0: I'll say, could you please define top? Um right. top in relation to what? And right. then I'll be like, if you only had a position for top mount, like no, sunrise. Andrew, sunrise. <laughs> and then I know, oh, I should be Oh Jesus. I should be in a mounted position. Yeah. No. <laughs> Have I, I worn you down yet? No, no, you haven't. No. Um like I said, names
1: are cool and, and they'll they'll work if both parties are in agreement too. The problem is there's no there is no proper there's no established nomenclature. So in chemistry, in the the ACS right American Chemistry Association society, um, they have a nomenclature system for for chemicals. If somebody was to develop something like that for jujitsu, then it would work brilliantly. But because there's no governing body there, and everybody can name it whatever they want, like the chubby hippo, mm-hmm. then it doesn't work. Yeah, you still end up having to break down the technique when you're coaching.
0: Although, do you see how? Just that one mentioned, and it's in your brain, chubby hippo, It stuck with you. Yeah, I'm gonna have to like you know burn that out of my head, hey, since you don't have that tattoo of the butterfly anymore would would you get a matching <laughs> one with me that's th- like a chubby hippo tattoo? no, uh we're friends, but i'm I'm not gonna get a chubby hippo. Tattoo. Could I start calling you <laughs> chubby hippo? I, I might kill you. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! I know what the artwork will be for the next episode. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I know what you're thinking too. Oh, by the way, what, what did you think about the the last? Well, oh, I, I thought one? I had most the most beautiful
1: legs, and then uh, I proceeded to you know how how should I hurt Andrew
0: with my legs? What did uh, what did your mother think? Did she did she see I it? I don't know if she's seen it yet or not. Well, actually, I know. I know she saw it because I think she liked one of the comments. No, I, I was hoping that she would she would call you and just give you oh, a hard I, time. I haven't it. talked to her about it yet. All right, I'm in denial. I think. <laughs> well, we, uh, you know what, Kip and Paul, look at the look at the time on this episode. We are we're pushing an hour, and we didn't have any ADD tangents. Yeah. Uh, yes, you. I tried, but you 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 kept us on on pace. Yeah, we're professional. We're not.
1: You know. Yeah, we're not doing this
0: half-assed. No, we we have substance, and like I said, we're the cool young cousin. And you guys, listen, you—I'm an uncle. Yeah, Kip and Paul, you guys are the older, creepy uncles. It does, it, but that doesn't mean you can't be a cool uncle like I am. It, it just, just work on it, guys. Work on it. Yeah. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps up Leglocks Part Two. We will see you next week.